Welcome to episode 23 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and I'm speaking with... Shane. <laughs> hey, Shane. How's it going today? We're going to talk about some astrophotos for fun. Yeah, yeah. Easy astrophotography is uh, what I like to refer to it as. Right. Um, you know, astrophotography is a beautiful thing, you know, and there's a lot of people that that get into it and do a great job with it. But, you know, the photos that you see in magazines and, and often posted on the internet require a pretty big investment in time uh, and equipment. Uh, and, and by equipment, that equals dollars. Um, I'm not about any of that when it comes to astrophotography. I'm about the, the, the easiest, simplest, uh, most cost-effective way possible. So, you know, to set the record straight, I am primarily a visual observer, and I dabble a little bit in astrophotography, and I'll talk about some of that stuff today. Yeah, but you've you've made. I mean, you say that, and uh, and I, I guess I would agree with it. But you've taken some really pretty shots, like the shot that that, that actually both the images that are used on our podcast Podbean page. Uh, you took that. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So our our little logo of the moon. I I captured that photo a while ago. And then along the top of the Podbean page, or even on our Twitter account, there's a, a little bit of the Milky Way. And that's another one that I, that one I captured down in the grasslands on one mm. of our trips. And those are, those are beautiful shots. Like, you know, anybody who looks at those um, might assume that these are stock photos that maybe we, um, you know, borrowed or lifted somewhere, but sort of in, in keeping with the show, we're about actually doing the stuff that, that we're talking about. And, and so you've taken these and, you know, I'm not an astrophotographer really at all whatsoever. I've only taken uh, a few dozen astro images. Um, but when I get into astronomy, I really, really just wanted to learn the stars and constellations so I could shoot great astrophotos and put them on the wall and like impress my friends and everything. <laughs> and how did that work out? <laughs> it, it, it worked out okay. So I knew some people who were photographers at the time, uh, like, like really good photographers and one of them I, I believe is a professional photographer now um and uh and so they were able to guide me along uh my cousin will who who does our who does our music keeps saying he's gonna gonna do another a bit of music for us which would be awesome uh he is an amazing photographer filmographer documentary maker um but uh yeah, so they, they kind of guided me in the right direction, and I built one of these, what's called a barn door tracker, which is usually a manual mount that you have like two pieces of plywood or whatever. They're kind of like in a bit of a sandwich, and then you have a, a screw and a thing that you turn every 15 seconds to kind of track the sky. So I had built one of these with my friends who, who knew a lot more about photography than I did. I went and bought, this is like just back when uh, digital cameras were really coming out and they were way too expensive for me to afford when I was in university. So, uh, so I bought like one of the old uh, film cameras and at that time it was difficult to even get film, but I thought this would be a great way to start because I can get a really good, the best film camera that people had been using in the past decade for uh, astrophotos. I was able to get one for like a hundred or $150 and you know, all the film I could, I could shoot for like $50 or something. So, so I got started that way, but you know, I really was uh, a little bit underwhelmed with my photos. I was able to get constellations and nebulas and the Milky Way and stuff, but uh, 
you know, what I, what I didn't like was uh, kind of looking down and messing with stuff while all this astronomy could be had. And, and I didn't really do any astronomy when I was taking these photos. But the thing that I noticed about the way that you do it, which, which I quite like, and, I, and I've observed with a few other people that, that do this as well, is you folks are able to set it up. You don't really set it and forget it, like you have a timer or whatever, and you, you kind of come back and do some observing and your, your images are doing, they're taking place while we're actually doing some astronomy. And so, so for me, I find it really cool because you were taking that photo while we were observing that part of the sky. And that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, there's something kind of special about that. Um, you know, when you're capturing some photos of objects that you're looking at, maybe through another telescope or with binoculars, it's kind of fun. And I like the, the multitasking aspect of it. Although I will say, and I think I mentioned it before on a podcast, that when we go out observing, particularly down to a dark sky location like Grasslands, we're there for a minimum of two nights and sometimes a maximum of two nights. Um, one night, I won't take out the camera at all. Uh, I want that to be 100% me and my telescope or me and my binoculars and allow my eyes to get fully dark adapted and stay there. Yeah. Um, if you're going to do any kind of photography, you're going to impact your dark adapted eyes a little bit at some point or maybe even at multiple points throughout the night. So, you know, I, I kind of, you know, the, the second night or the night that I'm doing the astrophotography, I've, I've accepted the fact that it probably won't be my best visual night, but I'll get a little bit of both in throughout the course of the evening. Yeah, it's it's neat though. It it's really it's really a lot of fun to kind of you know get home and then have you send us those those photos or to see them online or whatever. I I really enjoy that aspect of it. It's it's very very cool. I'm glad I'm not doing it though because there there are a few things that uh, that you need to to do this. So you're not doing photos through a telescope. So that, that's correct, isn't it? That is correct. I, I've done a little bit of that in my backyard, but the astrophotography that I typically do is, you know, wide field to maybe medium field. Um, a lot of wide field stuff in the grasslands, particularly of the Milky Way. Uh, but I've also done like some constellation shots, um, some Northern Lights stuff. And I think this, you know, assuming we can get there towards the end of this summer, um, I would like to use some longer focal length lenses to uh, photograph like the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, you should try my, sorry, not to get off in too much of a tangent here, but you should uh, see if you can uh, get on, get your camera hooked to my uh, uh, TAC FS60. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's light enough that my little tracking mount might be able to handle it. Yeah, it just weighs... Uh, whatever it is, three pounds. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that would be, I would love that. I would love to have a photo taken through my little telescope. <laughs> oh yeah. We'll have to figure that out. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Didn't so, mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no. <that's, laughs> when, when we do these podcasts, I sit here like sort of on my desk. I have, uh, I have that tack uh, 60 and, and my, my Prima Lucha rings and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, you know, that I like to look at while I'm working during the day. It kind of is a nice atmosphere to work in amongst all my astro gear. So. <laughs> yeah, lots of squirrels for distraction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Right on. Um, so maybe another point too, when I talk about easy astrophotography, I want it to be like low impact in terms of the gear needed 
And then anybody that does astrophotography, there's, there's two main components. There's the acquisition. So you're out in the field taking the photos, but then you spend a lot, or you can spend a lot of time at a computer editing these photos and, and adjusting all sorts of levels to make them as good as possible. Both of those areas, I, I try to do as little as possible. I really just like the raw image out of the camera with minimal editing because I just don't want to spend a lot of time doing it. So uh, that'll be the focus of today. And what's neat about this approach is it's very accessible to a lot of people. Um, you don't need specialized gear. Probably a lot of the stuff that you have in your house already, you'll be able to take out and, and utilize it for some astrophotography. Yeah. So, I like that approach. I went to a talk by Peter Cervolo. It might have just been last summer, maybe a couple summers ago. Um, and he was talking about that, about how, you know, sometimes, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. People will, although his, his argument might've been a little bit more down that, that road. Um, but you know, it's kind of like in my mind anyway, it's like the acromat versus a parkmat. So an acromat has some color to it. And the apocromat is essentially color free. But a lot of acromats give you beautiful images of the planets. They just have a little bit of color. And yeah, for sure. Same kind of thing with the astrophotos. Like it, it's an astrophoto. It, it, you know, it should look like what it is and not, not become like this post-production piece of art all the time. You know, it's nice just to see what you're actually, uh, what you're actually doing. Like what is that camera and that sky condition at that time uh, producing exactly, right? Yeah. And, and just to give people an idea of what it takes to produce, you know, the images that you see in books and magazines, um, oftentimes uh, to get like a nebula that's full of, you know, the beautiful reds and all sorts of different colors and structure. Um, some of those photos can be 15 hours of acquisition time. Yeah. Meaning, you know, the, the, the photographer had a camera attached to a telescope for 15 hours of combined time, gathering light from the sky and building these images. Um, the one that I have in front of me, which, uh, you know, people can look up online is Barnard's loop and M 78 all in the same frame. Uh, the one that I'm looking at the, the photographer took 78 photos and the exposure lengths of each photo varied from 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. Then, they take those 78 photos to a computer. Um, they stack them using software. So, you know, put them basically like layers on top of each other. And then they do all sorts of adjusting of the image, uh, you know, adjusting levels and all sorts of things. The end result is incredible. It's beautiful art and it's uh, quite fascinating, but it's a huge investment of time. And then on top of that, they'll likely have specialized uh, camera gear that is made for the night sky and really doesn't work for anything else. You'll typically have a very expensive telescope, but the most important part of all of this is your mount. Uh, you have to have a perfectly tracking mount um, that can handle the load of the telescope and the camera and, you know, a good astrophotography setup um, where you want to take, say, you know, these magazine quality images, um, you're in the thousands of dollars for an imaging setup like that. Um, if you want to take really beautiful shots of say the planets, um, how a lot of people do that is with video and then they'll extract the frames from the video, uh, to build the, the, the final image. So it's not uncommon to have 
like 12,000 frames of one planet. You know, uh, if you're shooting, say, 60 frames per second of video, um, I'm not sure how much time that is, but, you know, you'll get thousands and thousands of frames. Then you run it through software where the software will choose, say, the 40% best frames. And then you stack those, you adjust colors and all. You know, what I'm getting at is there's a lot involved there. And again, I'm, I'll stop talking about that and I'll start talking about the easy astrophotography that really doesn't involve all of that stuff. But I think it's important to have a, a short conversation about some of those complexities um, because I think when some people get involved with astronomy, uh, they want to take those types of photos uh, and they might buy a $500 telescope thinking they can achieve those. And you, you know, you probably won't. Um, and that's um, just the reality of what's required to, to accomplish some of those great astrophotos. So what is the easiest way to get started in astrophotography, Shane? Well, a cell phone. Uh, let's, let's start there. Okay. Um, you know, if you, we, we pretty much all have cell phones and I'll talk about kind of real basic cell phone photos, but I think even cell phone cameras now are really evolving and becoming quite phenomenal. So you might even be able to go beyond what I'm about to say, but um, the moon is a very easy uh, object to photograph uh, with a cell phone. Um, if you're out at a public stargazing night where there's telescopes, uh, you can try holding your phone camera up to the eyepiece. Uh, and this gets to be a little bit tricky, you know, to get the right focus and distance, but you can take uh, photographs that way, just kind of projecting through the eyepiece. Um, but there's, a, there's another phenomena that probably suits cell phone cameras even better. And I don't think we've talked about it yet on the podcast. And that's capturing the belt of Venus. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, have, you, have you ever photographed that? I know you've seen it a million times. I've never photographed that. But uh, what the belt of Venus is, if, if I can just maybe give a, a brief explanation, is this is um, the shadow of space uh, or the shadow of the Earth uh, cutting through its atmosphere as it travels out into space. And you see this at sunrise and sunset or, or just after sunset in the evenings. Now, it almost looks like a bruising of the sky. It kind of starts as sort of a pinkish uh, tone with a slight amount of purple, and then it gradually gets darker and darker. And so if you're looking towards the east after sunset, you want to look opposite the sun, and, and you can often see this if it's totally clear, and then uh, it will slowly rise up and darken. Yeah, it's, it's quite pretty. So I'm sure many, many people have seen it and just uh, admired the beautiful colors. But what you're seeing is the shadow of Earth cast uh, into the atmosphere, essentially. It's beautiful. And, you know, with a cell phone, you can capture that. Now, some people would say, come on, Shane, that's not really astrophotography. Um, but, you know, I think anytime you're capturing um, sky phenomena of any kind, I, you know, I, I'd like to view that as astrophotography. Yeah, it's, a, it's an astronomical event, like you're seeing the shadow of Earth cast into space. Uh, you know, in, in the right conditions, you can see this and, and you can see a lunar eclipse at the same time, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that same type of phenomena. So, you know, it, it's the idea that we are on a planet that's going around the sun and it's in space and, uh, and what you're doing there is astronomically related. So what, what else could somebody take a photo of using a cell phone? Well, that might be about it. Um, what I about guess the moon through through an eyepiece. I've I've done oh, that yeah. before, but with uh, with 
a slightly different kind of CCD camera. Yeah, either the moon or planets through a telescope eyepiece, uh, you can certainly do. Um, if it's nebula or galaxies, yeah, that's gonna you know, be they're pretty dim. And I'm, I'm not sure that a cell phone would pick that up very well. But yeah, certainly Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the moon, all of that is possible. Mm. Cool. Um, now, kind of moving away from cell phones, because they are certainly limited. Um, I'll move on to um, like what is a commonly referred to as a DSLR camera. Uh, many people own them. Those are the cameras with the lenses that you can often change. Uh, but what is nice about those cameras is you can basically put it into full manual mode, uh, which I really recommend for astrophotography, um, because you're going to have to adjust all of those settings on, well, not all of them, but a number of settings on the camera so that it does capture proper astrophotos. Um, the way these cameras are designed is to function during the day. And so when you put it into like an automatic mode, it just doesn't work for astronomy um, because it's not, it's not meant to hold the lens open for a long period of time to gather photons and things of that nature. So, um, so sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm just curious, are, are you using one of these DSLRs? I, I thought your camera was a little bit different somehow. Yeah, so there's uh, DSLRs are like a bigger camera. I'm using a mirrorless camera. So it's different design and construction than a DSLR, but you still have like full manual control. Uh, the thing that I like about the mirrorless cameras is they are much smaller and lighter. So when it comes to mounting these things, um, whether, you know, on any kind of tripod or even just packing it with my gear, they're so much smaller and lighter that it makes all of that easier. Yeah. So I quite like it. So uh, the one that I use is nothing super expensive. It's a Sony A6000. In fact, it's quite a few years old. Um, but just to give people an idea again of what you need, and it's not a lot, you can get into this for uh, probably the camera that you have in the closet right now. Um, so maybe to just set the stage a little bit too, to what we're trying to do here with astrophotography is... Um, when you look at an object with your eye, um, it, it creates an image of that object in, in that instant, you know, with reflected light that the eye absorbs. And, you know, that's how you see color and, you know, shapes, objects, all that kind of stuff. Um, the reason why when you look at, say, a nebula through a telescope and you just see gray is the light is just processing that image in that instant. A camera collects light over a period of time. So if you think of light as little particles, uh, almost like dripping water from a tap, um, if, a, if a dripping tap uh, has a glass underneath it, you'll eventually fill that glass up with water. With astrophotography through a camera, you hold the lens shutter open for a period of time and little photons keep dropping onto that camera's sensor and it just builds more and more detail into the image. And that's why you get some fantastic colors um, and great detail in the structures. So what we're going to talk about now is really just the settings on the camera that kind of maximize its ability to gather that light. Um, the three things that I'll talk about in terms of settings on a camera are ISO or ISO. Uh, exposure time, and then your aperture setting or your f-stop. Um, are you familiar with any of those, Chris? Have you played around with them on cameras? Yeah, before? a little bit, a, a little bit. But uh, boy, 
it's it's been a long time since I've really given much thought to that. Maybe one thing we should mention really quick is just about the the difference between the well, maybe explain the f-stop, but but how that's different from a telescope because typically with the f-stop and the focal length on the camera lenses, well, like the longer the the number, the you know, the, the higher the power. So if you use like a like a really high number, like a 200 millimeter lens, you're zooming way in. But if you use like a 50 millimeter lens, you're kind of you know getting a, a real wide field. But with the uh, with the telescope eyepieces, um, if you use uh, like a like a low power is going to be like a 30 or 40 millimeter, and a high power is going to be like a five millimeter, say. So you just want to talk about the differences there really quick. Uh, yeah, so, um, the, the, the lower the number, so your lens focal length, like Chris said, you know, if it's 50 millimeters, that will give you a wider field of view than say a 200 millimeter, uh, lens, but a 200 millimeter lens will give you essentially more magnification. Um, but then there's also the F stop on a camera, like F2, F5, and, you know, all sorts of numbers in between. And that's really just the kind of an aperture mask. So the lower the F stop, the more light that's allowed through that lens. Um, so if you have an F2, you're going to let an awful lot of light through that entire lens. If you have an F10, uh, it's going to be a much smaller opening and very little light will pass through. Um, now there's benefits to both. Um, you know, the more, the, the, the key thing you're trying to do in astrophotography is gather as much light as you can with as few errors as possible in the photograph. Now errors, there, there's a whole bunch of different errors that I'll talk about probably in the next 20 minutes or so. But, um, when you run your aperture setting, say at F2, that's going to allow an awful lot of light through, which is what you want. The problem with running at f2 is the entire, almost the entire glass lens is exposed. And the issue with making quality optics is often at the edges of the glass. Um, you'll usually have some degradation in the quality. So if you're using all of that glass, you're going to potentially introduce some errors into your image. And if you've ever noticed, uh, say, wide field photography in particular, if you look around the edges of the photograph, you may see the stars are not pinpoints anymore. They might be kind of little elongated lines or in some cases almost look like seagulls. Um, and that's just errors in the glass. And the way you get rid of that is you change your f-stop. So maybe you go from an f2 to an f3 or 4. And then that will um, mask some of the errors in the glass. But the problem with doing that is you now are restricting some of the light coming through. So I think it's for every two factors of f-stop or something like that, you double the amount of exposure time required to gather the same amount of light, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thanks for that. You did a much better job than I ever could. <laughs> so... So really the rule here for aperture settings, so maybe I'll just back up one other thing. Between ISO, aperture, and exposure time, I like to call this the recipe. Um, so everybody's going to have their own sort of recipe or settings that they like to produce uh, the best possible image depending on their gear. Uh, so I'll tell you what I like to do in terms of my recipe, but um, when it comes to aperture or your f-stop, you want this set as low as possible without introducing a bunch of errors. So for my one wide field lens that I have, which is a 12 millimeter, um, 
about the lowest I go is f 2.2. If I go any lower than that, the edges of my photograph starts to become really messy and I don't like. So that's how it works for my camera. Now, maybe the next setting that I'll talk about is the ISO. And this is how, this is adjusting your camera's sensitivity to light. Um, so it varies from uh, very, very low, you know, which you would use during the daytime. But for nighttime photography, you probably want your ISO anywhere from 800 to 3200, somewhere in that range. Uh, the higher the number, the more sensitive the camera is to light, which is what you want for astrophotography. Um, now, the, the conundrum here is the higher your ISO, the more noise or and, and yeah, the more noise that's introduced into your photograph. So if you have it set too high, you might almost start to seem or feel like you're introducing static onto your photograph. You'll see all sorts of little points of light that is false color and not actually a part of the image. It's just uh, noise coming or being introduced into the photo uh, from the sensor of the camera. Um, so this is something you'll just have to feel out with your own equipment. Um, I run usually anywhere from 800 to 3200. Um, and depending on what I'm photographing, it, you know, it might be 1600. It might be, you know, any number in between there. Cool. Yeah. And then the last one here uh, that I'll talk about in terms of the recipe is the exposure time. So again, the camera, if, you know, think about that dripping tap and the glass collecting water. You want to set that exposure time for as long as possible, holding that shutter open to enable the camera uh, to gather as much light as possible. Um, Chris, if you're on a tripod, just a regular old tripod with your camera, um, what is the problem if you set your exposure time too long? Yeah, everything's going to get pretty streaky pretty fast as the earth rotates. The stars are going to appear to uh, form into long lines, long curving lines as they go around the North Pole or appear to go around the North Pole. Is that what you mean? Uh, 100%. Okay. So Good. that... <laughs> I don't know very much about astrophotography, but I did take some some of those star star trails is I think what uh, what the astrophotographers call them. Exactly. Yeah. So this can actually be really like beautiful, this could be exactly what you want if you're trying to create a photograph of star trails. But if you're not, this is the error or the conundrum for exposure time. If you hold that shutter open too long, uh, you're going to lose your pinpoint stars. They're, you're, they're turn into lines and what you're capturing is the rotation of the earth. Um, now your maximum exposure time without a guided mount varies a little bit on the focal length of your lens. If you're doing really wide field photography, so a, like a, like a, again, my 12 millimeter lens, I can go about 25 seconds, 20 to 25 seconds for real tight pinpoint stars. Uh, and I can push a, a single exposure to 30 seconds. Um, and it'll look pretty good unless you zoom in on some of the stars, you'll notice that they're starting to lose their pinpointedness. Um, so that's the conundrum there. Uh, now, if I just take a look at some of my, my recipes that I've done in the past, um, so some 
Milky Way shots that I've done down in grasslands. And it really helps to get to a dark sky for astrophotography, because if you're in a light polluted sky um, and you hold that shutter open on your camera, it's not just absorbing the starlight. It's absorbing like the, the artificial light that's creating the light pollution as well. And it just washes out your image. Um, but anyway, if you want to photograph the Milky Way, uh, get to a dark site, you're going to need a tripod. So that's probably the only other piece of gear that you'll, you'll uh, be required to, to have on hand. And that's just because your hand is too shaky to do any long-term exposure. Um, so put your camera on a tripod, point it you know, at the Milky Way. And then what I've done uh, for my stuff is I set my uh, f-stop to 2.2. I set my exposure time to 25 seconds and my ISO to 3200 because in the grasslands, it's as dark as dark really gets. So you can bump that ISO up quite high. And you've seen my photographs. They turn out quite well at that setting. Um, at least I think so. You know, you're able to see a lot of the structure within the Milky Way. Um, and there's just so much detail that comes out of that photograph. It's, it's really quite pretty. Oh yeah. And, and yeah, you, you do a great job with the machine. It really is impressive. And I think I've often uh, asked for your permission to use them in my talks and classes and you even come to the class and taught people how to do this in real time for free. So I appreciate that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, now the moon, let's say you wanted to photograph that, um, you know, with your camera, it's quite easy to do uh, as well. I still recommend a tripod. Um, you know, again, your hand is just too shaky to really make that a viable option. Um, but when it comes to the moon, you, you're really doing a pretty quick exposure uh, because it is so bright. Um, let me just see here. One of my settings was, uh, oh, here we go. Um, this was on one of my uh, zoom lenses. So I had it, uh, the focal length of the lens was 210 millimeters. Um, my f-stop was 6.3. So compared to my Milky Way photograph that I took uh, at f2.2, f6.3 is really restricting the light passing through the lens. But because the moon is so bright, it's okay. You're still going to end up with a really nice image. Uh, the exposure time on my Milky Way shot was 25 seconds. On the moon, I'm doing one 320th of a second. Very wow. quick exposure because again, it's so bright. Um, and then my ISO setting again, the Milky Way was 3200, so I'm extremely sensitive to light on the moon. I set it to 200, and it creates a really nice photograph of the moon where you're able to see a lot of the craters and the mare, and again, all sorts of other features um, that are visible there. Cool. Now, again, I really recommend that. If you're going to get into this, um, try what I recommended, but then play around with your numbers too. You know, change your ISO, change your f-stop, change your exposure, um, and just see what you like. Um, you might come up with some other settings that work really well for your equipment or just are more pleasing to your eye. Cool. Um, so some other stuff maybe that I'll talk about too that is kind of fun to photograph um, and we love it and we hate it. And it's uh, the Aurora Borealis. Um, oh, yeah. hmm. Why do we hate it, Chris? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I never really dealt with the Aurora too much before I moved here. And it's really neat to see the first time. It's cool to see the second time. 
but like on that third or fourth trip out in the spring when you've been so eager to get out and do some astronomy um, all winter and then the whole sky is bright and you're not able to see through it uh, for that brightness. It's almost like a natural light pollution in a way, preventing you from seeing the galaxies and nebulas, deep sky objects that we want to look at beyond it. Yeah, it kind of ruins the visual astronomy. However, if you have a camera, uh, again, put it on the tripod. Wide field is what you need for uh, the Northern Lights or the Aurora Borealis. Um, and what I usually do is I set it to about f 2.2. Actually, I, I basically use my um, my Milky Way settings. You know, f 2.2, ISO anywhere's from 1600 to 3200, and then I'll do uh, about a 20 second exposure. Um, and what might be just kind of you know aurora that you can all you know see with your eyes, but maybe it doesn't have a lot of structure or brightness. With these settings on a camera, this is where you pull out those bright, vibrant greens, curtains extending high in the sky. Uh, and you might even see some pinks and purples uh, coming into the photograph. Um, so you can really capture some beautiful northern light shots uh, with just a basic DSLR camera, uh, a tripod, and a wide field lens. You've gotten a few nice shots with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can do some constellation shots. Again, basically the same settings that I mentioned for the Milky Way. Um, you might want to use a medium range lens, like something in that 50 millimeter uh, range. And, you know, you can capture lots of different constellations with something like that. You know, Orion is quite beautiful. Uh, you can start to get some of the nebulosity of M42 in the, the tip of the sword of, of uh, Orion. Um, Trying to thank you. That's kind of the extent, I think, of my astrophotography uh, targets that I've done. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you can also do noctilucent clouds um, that we've mentioned. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I might as well mention that. Eh? Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I'll mention, too, is um, if you want to get into some really, really nice photographs of the Milky Way, the way to do that, well, there's two ways. Uh, um, and one way is you capture a lot of these 25 second photos and then you go home and you stack them and you process them and do all sorts of stuff on your computer. Um, another way is you can buy these little tracking mounts that um, are very small and lightweight. They go on top of your photo tripod. Uh, they have little motors in them and then you put your camera on it and it compensates for the rotation of the earth. So what this allows is uh, some photographs that extend well beyond the 25 or 30 second threshold that I mentioned earlier. Um, so these things can be purchased. If you find a used one, probably for, you can get them for around two to $300. I think a brand new one is maybe around $400. Uh, they're very simple to use and they've absolutely transformed my Milky Way photographs uh, to something that is, you know, closer to what you would see in a magazine or a book. Okay. Um, so what I've done with my little tracking mount is a uh, same camera, but my recipe changed a little bit. So, you know, using my 12 millimeter lens, uh, I kept my focal ratio at the 2.2 or my f-stop, I should say. Um, I, I changed my ISO though to 1600 but I increased my exposure time from 25 seconds to three minutes. Um, and I've even gone beyond that to, to five minutes. 
it is incredible how much more detail and vibrant uh, the Milky Way is at those settings. And because the mount tracks the Earth's rotation, you don't end up with any of those star trails. You end up with a beautiful photograph. Um, and in some of my photographs, uh, I've even captured um, some airglow, which, Chris, why don't you tell people what airglow is? Because for the longest time, I thought that it was an error in my camera and I was frustrated. Yeah, I remember and, you said, hey, what's wrong with my, like, what, what you were, like, complaining? And I was like, oh, no, that's because it's so dark where we are. You can actually see the air um, fluorescing. It's basically giving off a photon of light. Um, in a similar way to to the aurora, in, it's similar. It's not exactly the same, but you're not having aurora, but the the air um, or the air way upper atmosphere, the highest of the uh, part of the atmosphere, will interact with uh, the little bit of solar wind that's just always uh, coming by to actually make it glow a little bit. Um, and certainly, that's what these new cameras are are really good at picking up on. It seems. Yeah, yeah, they're. Uh... Uh, the, that was amazing actually to, to be able to see that and understand what it was. Uh, like I say, up to that point, I was a little frustrated. Um, there's two more things that I want to cover off quickly. Sure. Uh, one, you mentioned that I often set up my camera kind of off to the side and then I come back and do some astronomy while the camera is doing its thing. Yeah. That's um, cool. Yeah. One of the accessories that allows me to do that uh, is called an intervalometer. It's this little handheld remote essentially that plugs into the camera it's a usb thing and with the intervalometer you can program the exposure time and how many exposures you want the camera to take so what i'll do is i'll set up my little tracking mount with the camera on it uh, i'll program my intervalometer say to take uh, three minute photos or five minute photos and then i'll tell it to take 20 of those i'll set it up start that process and I'll walk away and then I'll come back, um, you know, in an hour or two hours and I'll turn off the camera and then the next day I'll check out what photographs I captured. Um, so the, that's the way to kind of set up a little bit of an automated process works really well. Uh, I highly recommend it. And the intervalometer also reduces vibration because if you're actually pressing, you know, say the, the camera button to, to open the shutter and start the whole, uh, process off, you're going to introduce a little bit of vibration, which is errors, which will be seen in your photograph. So the intervalometer just avoids that for you. Uh, the last thing that I'll talk about, and this might be one of the most challenging things that uh, people uh, have encountered if they've ever tried this before, uh, and that's getting a nice focus, a nice tight, crisp focus. Um, you know, most cameras, when you put it into the automatic settings, uh, autofocus will uh, work quite well for you uh, during the daytime. But when you're trying to uh, focus on the night sky, autofocus just doesn't work. It won't capture it. You'll have to do a manual focus. Um, and there's nothing more frustrating than, say, spending a whole night of capturing photographs only to realize uh, maybe at the end or, you know, when you put your photographs on a, on a computer uh, to notice that your focus wasn't quite right. Um, the easiest way to uh, overcome that is to buy yourself what's called a Bahitnov mask, B-A-H-I-T-N-O-V. Uh, and it's this little plastic thing. They're, they're very cheap, like 10 to $20 you can usually buy them for. Um, it's this little plastic thing with a bunch of lines in it. You put it at the end of your lens or at the end of your telescope. You find a bright star, 
and you take a photograph of it. Uh, and then you look on your camera display and it's going to have like these kind of arcing starlight lines uh, coming off that bright star. Um, and you basically, the, the, it'll be like an X and then uh, uh, another bar of light going top to bottom. The one you're looking at is that bar that goes top to bottom. It has to go directly through the middle of that X. If it's off to the left or it's off to the right, you don't have perfect focus. So what you do is you just keep making some small adjustments to your focus until you get that up and down line right in the middle of the X. And when it's there, you have perfect focus for infinity. Um, because that's the other thing, all lenses, when you do manual focus, they have an infinity setting, but I think every photographer knows that that's not really in, in the, that setting really doesn't correlate to infinity. You have to back it off a little bit. So the Behitnoff mask is the best way I know of to get a crisp focus for doing astrophotography. And I think... I think that's it. Did I, did I cover everything, Chris, or did I, I miss anything? Yeah. The, the only thing I was wondering about is maybe a, a few resources. Like we, at the very start, we mentioned, uh, Alan Dyer briefly. And, uh, Alan is, uh, is someone that you and I both know fairly well. Um, he's come and spoken at the local club numerous times, typically speaks at our star party. He, he only lives, uh, just, uh, I think about six or 700 kilometers here, but he lives sort of half, he lives sort of, about the same distance from where we often go observing, but just to the west of that as, as we do from these places. So we often do run into him. And he, he's uh, one of the co-authors for the Backyard Astronomer's Guide. And Shane, did you, did you find that to be a pretty good resource for getting started in, uh, in astrophotography as an aspect of amateur astronomy? It's the Backyard Astronomer's Guide by Terence Dickinson and Alan Dyer. Yeah, it, it is a really good resource. Um... They, they have quite a bit of detail on astrophotography in there. Um, great place to start. Good recommendation for sure. Okay. Um, I think that's a fairly expensive book, but that, I think that was one of the first books uh, I received as, as a gift on, uh, on amateur astronomy when I was getting going. It's much larger now than it was back then when you, it was like not even an inch thick. Now it's two or three inches thick. Um, the other thing I should mention is I'm trying to get this top of mind. I was in a teleconference with Alan a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago now. And he mentioned to me uh, that he's actually, they've just submitted the edits for the most recent edition, if I'm recalling that correctly. So I believe there's a new edition of the backyard astronomer's guide uh, coming out very, very shortly. Oh, wow. Uh, as we kind of uh, get through this, this pandemic phase, he's been, uh, busy uh, working away. So that's something that whether people are interested in astrophotography or other aspects of amateur astronomy, they can look for that book. The the older ones, like I haven't bought one in a while. I'll probably buy the new edition because it's been a while since I bought one, um, is probably about just about one of the best resources on amateur astronomy. Um, and then the other thing, I was just looking on his site because you mentioned the uh, his photos of the noctilucent clouds and that you've uh, sent out a link on his site. He actually has some links to some of his astrophotography books um, and their eBooks and they're very affordable. Um, you know, he's a tremendously experienced astrophotographer and amateur astronomer. I was just looking, I think they're in us dollars and the books were like 1495 each. 
Um, and then he also has some courses uh, that you can purchase there as well, uh, which are a little bit more, but he really walks you through that kind of stuff. Now, I haven't taken any of his courses <laughs> or bought those uh, books, but I do know Alan and he uh, really knows his stuff as well. I do know lots of people that have taken his courses and that. Um, and usually he comes and gives those courses in person uh, at the Saskatchewan Summer Star Party pretty much just about every year, doesn't he? I, I think that's... Yeah, yeah, he's been there a number of times. Um, and yeah, he's a wonderful astrophotographer. Yeah, very approachable uh, person. And and boy, talk about experience both in the visual as well as in the uh, astrophotography realm. Um, so, I mean, it is something somebody can do. You, you, you could start, I think he has lots of free videos you can download and watch as well. Um, and you can certainly go onto his website and, and sort of garner a lot of information, but, uh, he is somebody you can come out to and, and meet and, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where you come to a star party and you can sign up for a variety of different activities. Um, but it's, it seems very affordable considering, uh, what you're getting, I think, uh, pretty much. Uh, probably just pays for his, his gas to get there kind of thing. So um, yeah, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, I would definitely uh, recommend to people to go to, to Alan's site. And even if you're not like, I'm probably not going to take astrophotography up, although I've often thought about dabbling in the, in the planetary side of things, but uh, I, I frequently go to Alan's site just because I really do enjoy looking uh, at those photos and uh, people can know this. Uh, it's AmazingSky.net is Alan's site. Dot com, isn't it? Oh, okay. AmazingSky.com. AmazingSky.com. And uh, he's got photos of a lot of the places that you and I go and observe at. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, I like his latest images. Uh, he's got like a little section for the last two months of photos that he's taken. Oh, okay. Uh, so if you go there right now, he's got a number of noctilucent uh, cloud photos, which we've been talking a little bit about. So it just gives people an idea of uh, what they look like. Yeah. So he's done photos at the old man in his backside that, uh, mm -hmm. that we've set up as a nox nocturnal sky preserve in it's right on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then the Cypress Hills, um, which is in the same general location. And then sort of on the Montana and Saskatchewan border is the, uh, is the very large and uh, desert like, uh, Grasslands National Park. Uh, he's done lots of photos there. And uh, I did connect Alan with the museum down there. So when you go into the museum, once it's reopened, it's not going to be open uh, this summer is, is my understanding, but uh, his photos uh, form a, a large panorama that's, that's on the wall of the museum. So uh, that's pretty cool. And, and he says that that's pretty much his favorite spot to go and, and do uh, astrophotography. And we've actually had um, like a big group of astrophotographers come down and, and taught them the nighttime sky. I remember that a few years ago and we did a big session with them. Like, I, I don't know anything about astrophotography, but I can teach people the stars and constellations. And so we did that and then they, they all took off in their vehicles and, uh, and went off to various locations in the park at night and, and did a bunch of, uh, a bunch of astrophotography. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty neat. Um, yeah, the key thing with astrophotography, if you're interested in doing it, is just get out there and start messing around. It, it, the beauty of digital cameras is the cost is basically, you know, it's a sunk cost. You've already got the camera. Uh, it's just a matter of playing around and, and start capturing some photos. Cool. Well, anything else you wish to add to this one, Shane? It was really, I really enjoyed it. It's really interesting to hear kind of the ins uh, and outs of what you're doing when we're out there. I just uh, really love those little tracking mounts that they've been making now. That's sort of the, 
the answer to the problem that, that I encountered early on where I wanted to do some photos, but I didn't want to sort of quote unquote, like, like wreck the night mucking around and looking down and turning a knob. Um, and those kind of do all that for you. So you kind of are able to, to set it up and then go and enjoy some, some master photography. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is too, like relatively they're, they're inexpensive compared to, you know, prior to these little tracking mounts, you would have to buy essentially like a telescope mount for your camera. And, you know, you'd often be talking about something that is much more costly, much bigger to transport and even more complex to set up. Uh, these things are so easy to set up. You really just point it north, make sure you have the right uh, declination setting on there, which is just your uh, 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 latitude. And away you go. Very easy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shannon. I really appreciate this and uh, look forward to seeing some great astrophotos when we're able to get down to the dark sky here, uh, hopefully maybe even as early as next month as we've been talking about. Fingers crossed. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.